Good afternoon and welcome. It's wonderful to see everyone here uh, on a slightly dreary and cold day, but uh, uh, I think General Clark will warm it up and, uh, and the conversation I'm sure will too. Um, I do a lot of welcomes and introductions and they are mostly of lawyers. Uh, and so today is a little bit uh, different, uh, but I, I think it actually fits quite well with what we do here. Um, from the inception of the law school 200 years ago uh, and the university more generally, uh, UVA Law School has been educating lawyers as part of the democratic project and part of the growth of uh, the republic from the beginning and uh, throughout the last 200 years growing lawyers who serve as leaders in our cities, our states, our nations, and across the world. That continues very much to be true today. Uh, we just launched, as most of you know, the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy, whose mission is to promote democratic dialogue and civil discourse, focusing on the core principles of respect for the rule of law, integrity in public office, freedom of speech and press, and the importance of civic engagement in a plural society. And this law school not only continues to espouse those values, but continues to educate our graduates uh, for service at the highest levels uh, as we enter our third century. I speak often about the responsibility that comes with the public trust of holding a law degree, uh, that your education creates opportunities not only for personal gain and personal opportunity, but also public obligation and service in government, uh, whether that be through your own engagement as a citizen, running for public office, working uh, in the public service are critical ways that our graduates discharge that service. And currently, I'm proud to say, the law school has more graduates in Congress than all but three law schools in the country. Uh, and from my conversations with many of you, I know that you are eager to serve, whether it is as a voter, uh, as an engaged citizen, uh, as a government official, or an elected representative uh, in the legal and political arenas. Um, so we are so fortunate today to have a non-lawyer, uh, who Hunter will introduce in just one second, to help spur you in the direction toward greater uh, political engagement and productive political engagement uh, and to help you think about what that path might look like and what your future might be. Uh, I will leave his introduction uh, to Hunter, but I will just say it is hard to imagine a smarter, more accomplished, more distinguished guide into the world of politics and governance. And it is really our honor to have you here, General Clark, uh, and to welcome you and to uh, inspire our students uh, toward futures of law and democracy. So thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Hunter Hampton, and I am this year's president of the Student Legal Forum. The Student Legal Forum is one of UVA's oldest institutions. We are now in our 72nd year. The forum has a long tradition of inviting prominent speakers of national renown to address our community on topics of great importance. Our speaker today is fully in keeping with that tradition. Before I introduce him, I would like to make a few preliminary remarks. First, I would like to thank Professor Tom Nakbar for connecting us with our neighbors at the JAG School and Colonel Stephanie Sanderson for letting their students know about us. I'd also like to thank the Jefferson Literary and Debating Society for spreading the word on central grounds. Likewise, our thanks go out to the Center for National Security Law, the Law School Communications Office, Dean Golubov, Professor Dick Howard, Catherine Duvall, David Holsapple, Dale Nesbitt, and of course, our own student volunteers at the Student Legal Forum. We couldn't do this without your help and support. 
Additionally, we regret to announce that Ms. Yellen was unable to join us today due to unforeseeable circumstances. She sends her regrets, but assures us that we are still in for a real treat. Finally, we have lunch. Please help yourself uh, as we are getting prepared, but once our speaker has begun his address, I ask that you refrain from lining up at the tables until the event has concluded. Don't worry, the food will still be there. And with that, I'd like to introduce our esteemed guest. Wesley Clark is a businessman, educator, writer, and commentator. General Clark graduated first in his class from the U.S. Military Academy and was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. He served in the U.S. Army for 38 years, including in Vietnam, where he was wounded in action leading his men. During his service, he was the principal author of the U.S. National Military Strategy and Joint Vision 2010, prescribing U.S. warfighting for full-spectrum dominance. He also worked with Ambassador Richard Holbrook in the Dayton peace process, where he helped write and negotiate significant portions of the 1995 Dayton Peace Agreement, which brought peace to Bosnia and Herzegovina after years of war. Retiring as a four-star general, he served his final assignment as NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe, where he led NATO forces to victory in Operation Allied Force, a 78-day air campaign in then Yugoslavia, saving one and a half million Albanians from ethnic cleansing. Since then, General Clark has not slowed down in the least. He is the chairman and CEO of Wesley K. Clark & Associates, a strategic consulting firm, and he is also active in the energy sector, serving as the chairman and founder of Invera Incorporated, the chairman of Energy Security Partners, and on numerous other corporate boards. He is also a senior fellow at UCLA's Burkle Center for International Relations, a centennial fellow at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, and a director of the Atlantic Council. He is the recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Defense Distinguished Service Medal, Silver Star, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, Honorary Knighthoods from the British and Dutch governments, and numerous others, or other awards. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming General Wesley Clark. Well, thank you very much, uh, Hunter, for that kind introduction. And uh, Letty Bien, it's uh, great to see you. You were there. You remember the beginnings at Dayton and, uh, and all that. And um, it's great to have you with us. And to all of you from UVA, thank you very much for spending your lunch hour with me today. I wanted to come down and talk to you. Um, I'm worried about the country, and that's why I'm here. This country needs, it needs real leadership, it needs real help, and it needs you. Now, um, my generation's about done. I'm two years older than Donald Trump, and I did fight in Vietnam. And, uh, but he's the last, probably, of my generation. Maybe Joe Biden's gonna run, we don't know. But the country, needs your leadership, your generation, and you have to set us straight. How can it be that this, is the, this was the greatest country in the world? When I retired from the United States Army in 2000, they had a big parade at Fort Myers, they always do, and um, it was a wonderful day, and the troops were strong and tall and looking great, and, they look so much better. I remember the soldiers I fought with in Vietnam, the draftees, the people that didn't want to be there. These were all volunteers. And I thought that day that, you know, the stock market was booming in 2000. The United States had created the internet and the dot-com boom. We led the world in investment banking. American culture was emulated everywhere. The American armed forces were supreme. Nobody could have thought of challenging us, 
and actually the most widely spoken language in the world was English. About three billion people could speak the three or four hundred words of English needed to communicate. And people from all over the world were flocking to the United States to learn about the American economy. We were absolutely on top of the world. It doesn't look like that today. American politics is more deeply divided than at any time since the Civil War. People are viciously opposed in the political system. The infrastructure that's needed to be built hasn't been built. My friends in China land and they go to LaGuardia Airport or they look at Reagan Airport and they say, <laughs> I mean, it looks like the third world here. I mean, what's the matter? The roads, no high-speed rail, come on. The Chinese offered me $40 billion to build a high-speed rail network from D.C. to Boston. I said, it's not about money, it's something else. We don't have it. We just killed the high-speed rail. And, and I could name issue after issue after issue, the space program. What's happened to the country? But it's more than that. It's that there's a range of problems out there that we have to deal with. We have to deal with terrorism, cybersecurity, the economic system, the financial system, globalism, income inequality. Uh, we have to deal with how to manage the ascent of China. We have to deal with climate change. And are we doing that? I don't think so. What I think we're doing is a lot of finger pointing, a lot of negativism, a lot of ideological posturing, and it just breaks my heart. And um, so I'm here to ask for your help. Your generation has to set this straight. And um, what Renew America is, is an effort to enlist some of you to challenge the candidates for office, local, state, and national, to focus on the real issues facing the country, to go to their appearances, to raise your hand, to stand up, to speak out when they say, I'm not too worried about that trillion dollar deficit, you know, that'll take care of itself. Really? Oh, really? Really? Hasn't so far in 40 years of promises that tax cuts would be made up by surging revenues hasn't happened once. Or when they say, you know, don't worry about it, there'll always be Social Security. Really? Really? How? Who's going to keep that Social Security alive for you when you're my age? And so we need to talk about the real issues of the country. And Renew America is an effort to, if I'm successful, some of you are going to sign up on that website and say, General Clark, we're going to go and we're going to challenge. And the question is, what are you going to challenge about? What's the substance of it, okay? And here's, here's what I, why I want to come and talk to you. So um, I've been fortunate to be at the top of the military, um, and I had a great military career. I went to Oxford, so I learned about foreign cultures right away. I learned to speak Russian at West Point, so I went to the Soviet Union in the mid-1960s. I was there before the Vietnam War started. Um, I... Uh, I had great mentors in the Army. I fought in Vietnam, but I stayed with it. I taught at West Point. I taught economics. I was a White House fellow. I worked in the Ford administration. All of my friends were Republicans. I worked for Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld. 
Rumsfeld used to run me out of White House meetings. Cheney tried to wait, take away my White House parking pass. And believe me, there's nothing more precious than that. <laughs> and, um, and then um, I went on, I commanded a battalion, brigade. Um, I wrote strategy, I did training, I was in the field, I was dirty, I wore BDUs or what we used to have before that, fatigues. Um, I was an armor officer, so I can repair a tank. I get my hands dirty. I'm a mechanic, basically. And um, so I did all of that. And I was uh, fortunate enough, I did my job, and people liked what I was doing. I was promoted, and I became the NATO Supreme Allied Commander. And in that position, I got to really stand up for what I believed. What I had seen as a three-star was the U.S. failure to intervene in Rwanda in 1994. Now, I know that some of you, probably most of you, weren't even born then. But let me remind you, Rwanda was a slaughter, an ethnic genocide in the center of Africa in which about a million people were hacked to death by machetes. Babies were thrown down wells. And we watched it in Washington, D.C., from the Pentagon, in Bill Clinton's administration, and we did nothing. And those of us who were there and saw it at first hand and realized, we said, we're never, never going to let that happen again. Never, never, never. When we can make a difference, we'll make a difference. And that's the spirit in which I'm here with you today. So when I was, I went with Richard Holbrook, we stopped the war in Bosnia. When I was NATO commander and and the Serbs were starting another ethnic cleansing campaign in this little corner of Serbia called Kosovo. We created the strategy. We brought American power to bear, and we stopped it. There's an independent nation there. Now, the Serbs are not very happy about it, and I don't go back to Serbia. Um, for, and if there are any Serbs here, I apologize to you. We didn't want to hurt anybody. We just wanted Milosevic to stop. He was a Serb president. And we used the rule of law, believe it or not, and he was arrested, taken to the International Criminal Tribunal in The Hague, put on trial, and decided he would, um, typical uh, Milosevic stunt, he was on high blood pressure medication, and he figured that if he could show that the blood pressure medication couldn't control his blood pressure, he wouldn't be tried, and they would let him go to Moscow and be treated by special Russian specialists. And so he tried to jigger with his blood pressure and had a stroke and died. And so he was never convicted of war crimes, but he was a war criminal. And the United States of America stopped that, and we stopped it cold. Anyway, I got out, and I went into investment banking, and I saw us going into war in Iraq. And I knew, hey, this is really uncalled for. And I checked. You know, I went and I looked at the intel and so forth. The generals told me there was no reason to do it. I spoke out. I got drafted to run for president. So I had five months in a presidential campaign. I raised $23 million, won Oklahoma, came in second in a bunch of states. I probably would have been considered the number three guy out of 10 candidates. I loved it. It was a great experience. And I got to meet people all over the country. I went to 30 states in 90 days. And, um, and I really learned America. I thought I knew it before, but I didn't know it. You have to know it politically. So now I understood the military, and I understood politics. But I wanted to be in business, so I went back, did investment banking, so I've worked with like Goldman Sachs, and I know if you read Matt Taibbi, you might think that Goldman Sachs is the giant 
squid-sucking vampire of the Western world or something, but actually it's a bunch of really smart people, probably some UVA law school graduates up there too, who are doing the best they can to manage money. But not everything that has good intentions has good outcomes. And so uh, I learned banking. I'm a chairman of an investment bank. I'm a licensed banker. I've been in about 120 businesses. I've seen the best that private equity could do. I've seen numerous failures. We put one guy in jail for falsification of revenue. I've worked with some of the, in fact, my banking partner is one of the best international lawyers going, working with Squire Patton Boggs up in, in DC. I just came back from Bulgaria, Indonesia, and Abu Dhabi. I was with a guy running for president of Indonesia with the prime minister of Bulgaria. So I'm working business at the top level, politics at the top level, the military at the top level. That's why I'm here. I want to give back to you. And how did we end up in the position we're in in America? That's the question. That's what you have to fix. So I went back and looked at 100 years of American history. I said, what happened? It's kind of interesting. We're actually, the, the politics in America moves in like 40-year cycles. So if you go back to the Civil War, let's say, and um, I grew up in Arkansas, okay? I apologize. We used to play Yankees and Confederates, and I was usually a Yankee because I was born in Chicago. And in Arkansas, the Yankees always lost. But I know in Virginia, uh, it was a lot the same. So you all are from Virginia, you know what I'm talking about. But if you go back to the Civil War, the people that made all the money in the, in the Gilded Age, they didn't fight in the Civil War. Rockefeller didn't, Carnegie didn't, none of those people. They came after the Civil War and they built huge estates and wealth. And the American people knew something was wrong and they resented it. And that was the beginning of the progressive movement. It wasn't a sharp demarcation. It took 20 years to get the income tax amendment passed and added to the U.S. Constitution starting in the 1890s, done in 1913. But the exploitation of workers, the extravagant wealth, the accumulation of power, the country reacted politically. And we created the Interstate Commerce Commission, and we created the Federal Reserve Bank, and we finally did some things to try to get, we busted up the trusts, and, uh, and then we went into World War I. And in World War I, Wilson sort of took control of the country, and in less than 18 months, he became a dictator. He nationalized the railroads, he forced labor and management to work together. American, he borrowed money, the American GDP jumped 40%. We sent, we mobilized 10 million men in the middle of the great influenza epidemic. We sent 2 million men to France. We put a million men under fire in 18 months. From a standing start, we completely built the American armed forces. And, but Wilson was such a dictator about this thing and using the power of war that after it was over, everybody rebelled against him. And he got sick and, 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 and it just fell apart. The 1920s, of course, we relaxed all that. We were the greatest nation in the world in the 1920s. We had three quarters of the world's gold supply. We came out of World War I with airplanes and radios. Well, prohibition wasn't so good. We got that too. The stock market was soaring. And uh, we dominated the world. 
but without the right leadership and the right role of government, the excesses of debt and speculation swept away the economy that we were building. So the, economy, the market crashed in 29, and Herbert Hoover, the president, didn't understand what to do. He was constrained by the theories of classical economics. You know, if you have excess goods in the market, what are you supposed to do? To clear the market, lower the price. You got too much wheat, <laughs> price should be lower. Farmers can't live on that price, too bad. They shouldn't be in farming business. And he was absolutely tied. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president. He didn't know what to do either, but there was an obscure British economist named John Maynard Keynes who had this idea that you could use the government to supercharge demand and rebuild an economy on the basis of government spending, not private sector spending. And he created macroeconomics. And it wasn't very well thought out. And Roosevelt tried to do some things that were actually declared unconstitutional. And I'm sure you all know more about that than I do, because you can only do so much you know, before you, the Supreme Court says, uh-uh, no more. And they did that to Roosevelt. But Roosevelt put in Social Security. He saved people's farms. He saved homeowners from losing their homes. He regulated the capital markets. He established a securities and exchange. He used the power of government to save our most important national resource, human beings. He used that power of government. Taxes went up. Wealthy people lost a lot of money, a lot of opportunities. Some people never forgave him for it. But before they could take revenge, we were in World War II. And he led us through World War II. Problem was, when we had the power in the 2030s, we didn't use our power abroad. And so the world lurched into war. Roosevelt got us through it. Truman figured it out. We didn't have a depression after World War II, despite demobilizing 12 million people. Because of the GI Bill, people went to college, and the VA home mortgage. Eisenhower got us into the Cold War, but he didn't want a war. What he wanted was to build the economy. He realized, though, that you had to, for the first time, have a military-industrial complex. This was industrial policy, but it was focused on the military. Now, some of you all, before you came here to become distinguished lawyers, I'm sure you studied economics. And I'm sure you know that industrial policy doesn't work. My friends who are the top economists at Columbia University, I went to see them a few years ago, they told me it doesn't work. I said, why doesn't it work? They said, look, the French government tried it. Um, they, they, they invested in a government-sponsored perfume. They put Bridget Bardot, the famous seductress actress, on the label, and nobody bought the perfume. So you can't have government-sponsored investment. Wrong. Because we've done it for 40 years in the defense sector. We built, in the defense sector, the integrated chips that today are found in smartphones. If it hadn't been for the Defense Department investment, that, that, that micro-miniaturization of circuitry wouldn't have happened. We built the internet which we all use today. We put up satellites for global positioning, which we all use today. Private sector doesn't do that. Eisenhower had the idea that we would have an interstate highway system. 
private sector doesn't do that. So he used the power of government. He built the military industrial complex. And then those who were on the other side in America, who didn't like the, there was a 91% marginal tax rate. Can you believe that? 91%. So my mother was a secretary in a bank in Little Rock, Arkansas, and the officers in that bank, they mostly didn't get pay raises because why would you give a guy a pay raise? By the way, they were all men, all the officers. I just want to say that. Why would you give them a pay raise? If you give them $100, they only keep $9 of it. So what you give them is country club membership, lunch club membership, so they get a car and a driver, and you bind them to the firm. So there were firm loyalties. These were the days when young people could graduate from college, go into IBM or Westinghouse or Chase Manhattan Bank, and they could work their whole career, be promoted through that, and have security, buy a home, get married, know that they could put their kids through college, and know that they were going to do better than their parents had done during the 1920s and 30s. That was then. But underneath was boiling a new series of thought that ended the 40 years from, let's say, 1910 to 1950, 1960, of the progressivism in America. And this was Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Economics. And I'm sure you all know Milton Friedman and, and, and market theory, right? You realize that if markets are perfect, then supply will always equal demand. And if you have a series of these markets across an economy, you'll have the most efficient possible allocation of resources to meet consumer demand. And Milton Friedman's ideas coincided very closely with the ideas of those who rejected what Roosevelt had done to the economy. And so starting in the 1970s, as these ideas took form, a wave of deregulation began across America to reduce the administrative state. So there was pressure against the Civil Aeronautics Board. So airlines didn't have to serve every state capital. Now it was up to the airlines to make money. And if they didn't want to fly to Topeka, Kansas, well, okay, Topeka, if they don't want a direct flight from Little Rock to Washington, D.C., that's up to the airlines. Doesn't matter that's the state capital. Um, so, okay, it sort of made sense. And people begin to say, you know, uh, wh why do we have this rule on media that you have to have fair and balanced news reporting? I mean, it was in the law. Who, who can interpret that if people say things? I mean, why not let the public interpret it? And so get rid of that. And then there were restrictions on how many TV and radio stations you could own in a single market. And so why? If it makes economic sense, let them own it. And a guy named Robert Bork, I don't know if that rings any bells. Okay, does? Okay. You know, if you studied antitrust laws, anybody done doing anything on antitrust? I mean, he completely upended it. It used to be about monopolies in the marketplace. And then it became a new standard. The new standard was what's best for the consumer. He took Walmart's idea of everyday low prices, and he made that the standard, so it became efficiency. And so you don't stop the AT&T merger if you're going to get greater efficiency, theoretically, for the consumer, even though you've created these huge monopolies 
that dominate the market. People are saying, wait, 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 wait. So step by step, the restrictions and the administrative controls, the efforts to save capitalism that Roosevelt put in in the 1930s were disassembled. Some of them you couldn't help. Look, we saved a lot of money during the 1950s, and teachers and firemen and policemen got, they had defined benefit programs. You know what I'm talking about, defined benefit? You know, like you retire at 20 years, you get 50% of what you got paid and so forth. And, and government employees, the subway workers in New York, they struck, they had unions, they struck for these benefits, and, uh, and they got them. And so uh, it was, uh, th that money though, had to, you had to do something with it. What were you gonna do with it? Put it in a savings account? No, because, I mean, the savings account was gonna, so you had to do something. So they put money managers in charge of the pension funds. And the pension fund managers said, well, you know, okay, we can buy some shopping centers, and um, we can, you know, get some state bonds with this, but there must be something else we can do. They gave it to Wall Street. Wall Street said, leverage buyouts. Give us the money, we'll take 2% each year in a management fee, 20% of the upside is ours, that's the two and 20 funds. Probably some of you uh, dream someday, or maybe you have worked at Goldman Sachs and seen these sweet two and 20 deals. Man, it's like <laughs> the pension funds, CalPERS comes in, or TIAA CREF comes in, and they say to Blackstone today, they said, oh, we, we got $5 billion, what can you do with it? Blackstone says, oh my God, another five billion? What can we, and actually, this is the way the economy works today. And on the other side of the economy, we've got 50% less small business creation today than we did in the 1970s. There are fewer publicly traded firms today than there were in 2000. Because it doesn't, when you, create scale, then entrepreneurship and innovation fall by the wayside. And that's a 40-year cycle we've been in since the 1980s. And I guess Bill Clinton finished it off when he got rid of the banking laws that, that enabled investment banks to be merged with, uh, with uh, customer uh, consumer banking and demand deposits. And um, there was even a provision law that you couldn't regulate derivatives trading. So I don't know if you all are doing finance law, but the last time I checked, there's like $600 trillion of dark derivatives on currency swaps out there, and nobody knows where they are or who they belong to. But think of it this way. Italy's in trouble economically. They have debt, so the Italian government says, can we sell some bonds? And we, they sell some bonds and the Germans buy them and they say, we bought $100 billion worth of Italian debt. Basically, we're worried and they're looking for insurance on that debt. So they go to another bank and they say, look, this could go down like $10 billion. How much would it cost us to buy $10 billion of insurance on these German bonds? And they say, uh, $10 million. I said, oh, that's pretty good. Okay, we'll pay you $10 million. If it goes down $10 billion, you'll pay us $10 billion. And then somebody at this other bank says, you know what, we got a $10 billion potential overhang. Uh, let's go to the bank of, to Barclays Bank, and let's say to Barclays Bank, 
We got this $10 billion overhang on these, on these, on these Italian bonds that were, came through Deutsche Bank. And it, can, how do we get protected on our $10 billion thing? Can you help us with that if the currency changes or the interest rates change? Can you, can you, so how much would it cost? Say, oh, that would cost like $5 million for, per year. And these things are going back and forth and nobody, of course, if you're a banker, you like it because you get a success fee for having done it. It's how you make your millions of dollars. But if you're in the overall picture of the economy, nobody knows what's out there. So what's happened is that we disassembled Roosevelt's state. And we've moved beyond that on the Milton Friedman model of trusting the efficient market theory and the shareholder theory of value. And that's where the economy is today. And on the strategic side, we won the Cold War without firing a shot, but we then had no strategy. And after 9-11, we rallied the country around the idea we were gonna kick somebody's ass. And it, we didn't like Saddam Hussein. Now you all weren't born when there was that picture of Saddam Hussein with a little nine-year-old boy sitting on his lap and he looked like a villain. And you know, America loves to go after villains. So we went after Saddam Hussein. I've been there, I've seen that stuff before. I knew it wasn't gonna work and sure enough, I mean, we went in there, the military did great. Uh, we defeated every force and then uh, we got there and it's like, hey, uh, what is this? I mean, these people don't speak English. Where's the McDonald's? Uh, how do we live here? I, I wanna go home. And we destroyed their government. We created a failed state in Iraq. We didn't even have enough common sense to have a general come and sign a surrender document for us. Why? Even after we dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, we forced them to surrender and sign a document. We didn't have the common sense to do that in Iraq, so we created a failed state. And sure enough, we ended up with a civil war and a terrorist state in there. In Afghanistan, we invaded we said we were going to go after one Osama bin Laden, dead or alive. We didn't, we didn't go after Osama bin Laden. We just went to punish the Taliban. Osama bin Laden went to Pakistan. We spent 20 years trying to figure out what to do with Pakistan. Well, it's got nuclear weapons, and uh, it says that, uh, you know, they're, they're on our side. They, they say our best allies. But, but it turns out they weren't. They were hiding Osama bin Laden, and they're supporting the Taliban, and to this day they're supporting the Taliban, and you're not going to win in Afghanistan unless you can stop the support from Pakistan. That was a lesson we learned in Vietnam, but the most important lesson is don't start wars. Don't start wars. They usually end badly. You fight only as a last, last resort. And now, we're in a situation where we don't like our allies, but we like the dictators. So we just saw how well that worked out in Hanoi. You know, it's one thing to sort of go to a guy you may not like and say, I don't like you very well. You're a great guy. You're building those full of rats and fleas, but I'll buy it, but not at the price you're offering, and do a real estate deal. It's another thing to take a state that's survived for 70 years against all kinds of outside pressures that has a system of autarky that starved two million people of its own people rather than comply with international instructions during the 1990s that 
built a nuclear weapons program with the help from China and the Soviet and Russia and the Soviet Union before that, and think that they're going to surrender it because you pat the guy on the back and say, now you're my best friend. That personal side, every president makes the mistake of thinking that they are, because they won an election, their personal charm and charisma is so great that they can persuade somebody from another state to do something that's not actually in their interests. President Clinton went to China, and he had good relations. He went to Russia, he had good relations. But it didn't change the fact that China and Russia have their own national interests. President Bush had a very good meeting with Vladimir Putin in Texas. Putin wore a cross. Bush said, I can you know, see into his heart. But it didn't change the fact that Russia's interests were different than the American interests. And today, it's the same. So if you look at 100 years of American history, here's the lessons that you come up with. Number one is that if the United States people and its government work together, there's nothing we can't do. But if you believe that government is the enemy, as we've worked on it for the last 40 years, that government's vision doesn't matter, that you have to leave it up to the marketplace, then you give up on that lesson. We learned that you should not go to war unless it's absolutely forced upon you. But we learned that if you're the most powerful nation in the world, this is lesson three, and you have the power, you better get out there and use it. You cannot withdraw from the world because other forces are out there. And because you're a major power, those forces will eventually impact upon you. So the way to prevent war is not simply to say, I'm not going to attack somebody. It's to use preventive diplomacy, engagement, to understand the other person, to work with allies. The lesson of World War II was <laughs> we had allies. And we learned that lesson so well that we embedded those allies in formal treaties after World War II. You've got to have friends and allies, and you've got to lead. Another one of our lessons is you've got to have a vision for people. They have to have a dream and a vision. We had that dream right after World War II. It was, you know, every person was a homeowner. We had that dream with John Kennedy, in which Kennedy had a vision of America, of a Camelot. We had that dream actually with Ronald Reagan, where he said we were, America was a shining city on a hill. Madeleine Albright tried to give us that dream in the 1990s and after she left as Secretary of State. She said, America is the one power that has to be involved in everything. We're the indispensable nation. What is the vision of America today? Got to have a vision. What I see out there in America today is a lot of dystopia. When I see the fiction that my son writes, he's a screenwriter in Hollywood, it's dystopic fiction. It doesn't say the 23rd century is better. It says the 23rd century looks like a, like a roadrunner and a Mad Max with broken down technology and anarchy and weapons and so forth. Got to have a vision. And so if you look at these lessons, the idea of Renew America is take these lessons from a broad period of time. Recognize that American politics goes in 40-year cycles. We're at the end of one 40-year cycle of diminishing the role of government. And look at the issues that we have to 
deal with today in the world and force the candidates to come to terms with those issues. That's what I'm hoping we can do. American politics is too often the cult of personality. I remember my first presidential election. I was in the third grade and everybody had I like Ike buttons on. And I remember when John Kennedy ran against Nixon and people said, God, his wife is, I mean, Jackie Kennedy is, God, she's beautiful. And, 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 and her sister is royalty. Ooh, royalty. But I mean, wait, I thought in America we were against royalty. No, but we like it. And so I remember that cult of personality. And Jimmy Carter was honest. He'd never lie to you. And that's true. He never did. And Ronald Reagan was a cowboy. I mean, he was the right kind of cowboy. He was the kind of guy who would ride in with a six-shooter and clean things up. And, and he, was, he could tell a great story. Uh, Bill Clinton was the comeback kid. Bush was the guy he wanted to have a beer with. Obama, he was the message. I mean, that's all it was. He was the message. And, well, I mean, nobody knows how to do it better than Donald Trump. Greatest businessman in American history. And he knows the world, and it's all up to him, and he can do it. So there's always been this cult of personality around American politics. But where we are right now, and this is the last thing I want to say, and then I want to take your comments and questions. Look, on the other side of the Pacific is a great nation. Throughout most of history, human history, for the last 9,000 years, it's been the greatest nation and the greatest force for good in mankind. In that nation was the origin of writing, the printing press, gunpowder, kites, magnetism, silk, all technologies, structure, examinations, education. That nation is China. China has 1.3, some people say 1.4 billion people, and China has a dream. And under President Xi Jinping, China believes it should be restored to its rightful place of leadership in the world. And it has a system. As my Chinese friend said to me, said, you know, we have the best and the brightest. We have an examination system. And only the brightest get to the top universities in Beijing. And, uh, and we send some of our talent to America, and they learn the best from you. He said, but you say you believe in the American Constitution and, and this democracy. He said, how can it be that a group of wealthy people, men, sitting in Philadelphia 250 years ago could outline some rules that could solve today's problems better than the smartest minds on the planet today who see those problems. How could that be? And so you at the University of Virginia Law School have to answer that question. You in this generation have to answer that question. If the United States can't come to terms with climate change, if we can't be more equitable in the distribution of income and wealth, if we can't open up the doors of opportunity for people who are born disadvantaged, if we're not seeking out the best and the brightest to give them the opportunities to make a difference on a broader scale, if we can't deal with cyber threats and cyber crime, 
if we can't deal with terrorism, then what is it that makes our society better? I know, I know, I know, individual rights, liberty, freedom, yes, but we're in a society, we're here together. There's a challenge out there. We believe we can do it with democracy. We believe we can select the right people to run for office. We believe these people in office representing us as voters can make the right decisions to deal with these problems. China doesn't believe that. China, though, is growing 6% per year. China has pulled a billion people out of poverty in 30 years. Never in human history has any nation made progress like that. When I was in China in 2005, my friend who was the leader of President Hu's Youth Council saw President Hu once a week, good member of the Communist Party. He told me, he said, 2005, and he spent a year at the Kennedy School. He said, in China, we know you and Britain were best friends, and Britain gave you leadership of the world. China wants to become America's best friend, so you will give us leadership of the world. But in 2008, when the economy crashed in the United States and all over the world through mortgage-backed securities, China invested heavily in infrastructure, and China's economy didn't crash, and China didn't have unemployment. China grew, and China looked at the United States and said, not as good as we thought. Don't have to respect them the same way. Maybe their system is not superior to ours. And so today, China is reaching through Korea to Okinawa, reaching for the South China Sea, reaching for the nations of Southeast Asia, establishing its ports in Pakistan and Djibouti, establishing the One Belt, One Road system, looking to buy American movie theaters to spread its culture. They like our soft power. They, they have ambitions. They have pride. Why shouldn't they? They've been the greatest power in human history. You think our system is better? You think it's better to have individual rights, the guarantees of private property and freedom? If you think it's better, prove it. Prove it. That's what Renew America is about. We're going to prove it through this election cycle. Thank you.